Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have put in the comments section of my Q&A videos. If you have questions for me, please go ahead and leave them in the comments section. We are slamming that back in with a vengeance. I want the engagement and I want your questions. And I know that's a very, very easy way to get them. So if you have anything you'd like to ask me at all, go ahead and put it in the comments section of this video. Or of course, you can send it to me in my email if you don't want to put it in the comments section. All right. Um, that all being said, we had uh, quite a little bit of a, some ups and downs this last week. And so um, we talked about that pretty extensively in our call-in show this week and in my podcast yesterday, having to do with the subjects of grief and loss and uh, the adjustments that we make dealing with that. And I managed to tie that in pretty strongly with my cult recovery. I have never, ever thought about cult recovery in terms of the five stages or elements of grief as put forward by the Kubler-Ross model. But um, I decided to take a good hard look at that. And, um, and it was actually kind of illuminating for me. And I hope you guys will check out the podcast that I put together on that because I think it is a little gives some insight into what I've been going through for years and have been talking about you know all this time but also kind of the fact that there is an end there is an acceptance point there is a place you can get to in cult recovery where your life really can move on and you can and and for me as I was telling Melissa last night about it um it, to me, recovery now, at least as I understand the concept and think about it, I, I think I've talked about it before, and I and I've and I think from this vantage point now, I'd like to say that recovery for me is sort of a, a situation where I'm no longer worried about or anxious about or even really concerned about whether Scientology is still influencing my own thinking. Um, which is not to say that I'm not, you know, that I don't think about Scientology or I don't think about destructive cults or things like that. I think about it all the time. But as far as me thinking or being afraid of L. Ron Hubbard um, subconsciously, you know, affecting my thinking process or worldview or my opinions about things, I've, you know, I've been given this nine years of really solid hard work trying to bust out of that and educate myself about it and move on past that and go through those phases. And that's kind of what I talk about in the podcast. So I won't talk about it more here right now, but I just wanted to give you guys a little, a little snippet of that. Um, it, it's kind of a big deal for me. And I hope that, um, you know, that this kind of thing will, will help other people in their own process too. Everybody's different. Um, you know, what I've gone through is going to be what I've gone through, but hopefully some of what I've gone through might be able to help you or uh, somebody you know or love in what they're going through. And that's the only reason I put myself in front of a camera and talk about this stuff. So I hope that it will help. Um, all right. So that all being said, uh, I need to put a quick plug in for a couple of things. The holiday season is coming up now. It is upon us. And so I need to let you guys know, I got merch for sale and I've got a book for sale. Uh, Scientology A to Xenu, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about, is a probably one of the best books I can think of on the entire subject of Scientology, not just my experience with it. It's not a memoir. 
it is a real breakdown of the topic. And so if you're interested in that or you know somebody who is, it makes a great gift and you can order it through Amazon. Links are below and that is available as an audiobook as well as a printed book. You can get it, order it as a printed book or as an ebook. All right. So that is out there. And of course, I need to put in a plug for my Patreon because of course, if you like this channel and want to support my work, that's the way to do it. And quite honestly, I'm I quite I kind of feel like my work should be supported. So, uh, so that's what I have to say about that. All right, let's get on with your questions now. Arita, hi Chris. I was looking at an old Incom newsletter from 1985 and noticed that their computers back then had a strange keyboard, where a normal keyboard would have its nav cluster and arrow keys. They had a raised area with an array of tiny, almost pin-like keys. It turns out that this keyboard was actually designed and patented by the Church of Scientology. Did you ever use one of these? And if so, could you explain how it worked? Do you have any idea why the church would spend resources on such an odd project as creating its own keyboard? This is a great question. I love questions about real, like real deep minutia about Scientology like this. This is this is this is good, and because it allows me to elaborate, of course, a little bit about the whole thing. But first, to directly answer your question, here is a picture uh, from the uh, link you sent me, Arita, of the keyboard in question, and you can see between the keys and the number keys, there is a a pad there of those raised uh, little prongs or pins, and uh, the way that keyboard works is those are the function keys. And um, function keys, I actually went and looked up, have been around uh, almost, you know, from going back to the 60s, but not really the way we understand them on the keyboard now. They've gone to all different kinds of places on the keyboard, different programmable function keys, which which are not just you know, the letter S or the letter A or something like that, but they are a key that you can program to carry out a series of functions or actions, uh, a save a file, open a file, do various things, you know, print a document. You can, you can set those into the function keys and program them. So, um, so in Scientology, they created this special keyboard because the idea was that they would have a cardboard or a little laminated template with holes punched in it that you could lay over that section of the keyboard where the function keys were, those pins, and the pins would hold the card in place and the card would, 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 would have written on it what the function of those keys were for the application or program you were running at that time. So if you were running the finance payroll program, then you'd pull out the template for that set of functions that you're running on that program. And if you are going over into this other statistics area of the program, you have a different template that you put over those function keys. And that tells you what the keys are going to do for that program or software. So each program had um, its own set of function keys, basically, and the keyboard reflected that. And so Scientology got clever and decided, you know, some, some bright bulb decided to patent their keyboard and this was going to be the system that they were going to use. And this was back in, in the early 1980s, um, back when the personal computers and keyboards and things like that were still fresh and new to people. I mean, the idea of having a computer in your house 
was a very, very strange idea in 1980. <laughs> I was there, right? I, a lot of you guys were too. And it's, you know, it's, it, was, it was a new, brand new thing. And so Scientology was thinking, well, if they, you know, Hubbard, one of the things Hubbard said, and I believe it was around this time period, uh, was, it was in relation to music and his, and his composing and coming up with special sound effects using natural sounds. Uh, and programming them into a, an electronic keyboard. He was also kind of trying to be uh, on the bleeding edge of music technology and development. And he said, uh, quote, I don't follow trends, I make them. Yeah, L. Ron Hubbard said that, right? Uh, a little delusional. He never really made anything trend, but he, um, he was thinking along those lines that, you know, recording natural sounds, programming them into a keyboard, making music with that was this really revolutionary idea. And, and probably in the late 70s and 80s, there were artists who were coming up with interesting electronic sounds and programming keyboards and all that. Well, same with this on the programming side of things. Let me give you a little insight. Since we, I don't know that I've, I've talked about this before, I've talked about income. And INCOM, I should have said at the beginning, INCOM is the International Network of Computer Organized Management. And that's a Scientology acronym. And I actually, um, yeah, I looked this up on, uh, on Tony's blog, this, this chug thing, okay? So, you know, why would L. Ron Hubbard or why would the Sea Org or Scientology think they were onto something special? Well, see... In the late 70s and early 80s, where computers were really starting to become a thing that people talked about, there were, you know, it wasn't just these mainframes that existed on campuses or at IBM's headquarters and stuff. It was now the idea of microcomputers because the microprocessor of the, you know, had been invented in the 70s and the, and, and the microcomputer and, the, you know, this, this, um, the old TRS-80s, the Apple Shacks, and the Commodore 64s, and the Apple One and Apple II. I mean, these are the old original, uh, pre, you know, um, uh, personal computers, and um, and so these were just being introduced into homes and stuff like that. And so my point is that people were becoming more and more aware of electronics and what electronics could do for them in their day-to-day -day life. This was. Just the, the beginning of the cusp of that, um, you know, within a few years, we would have the Macs and the, and the Commodore 64s and the IBM PCs and, and every home would start having these things and, and, and people would start getting used to this and then Windows would come out and, and, and they, these operating systems would start to grow. And by the end of the 1980s, this was just a common normal thing. But at the beginning, it wasn't. This was new and revolutionary. And Hubbard wanted to be on the bleeding edge of this. He believed that his um, knowledge and experience from the distant, distant past would serve to keep Scientology on the cutting edge of, of the technological revolution. And, um, and one of the advices, one of the issues that he wrote is confidence, super, super confidential. I didn't find out about this at all until after I left Scientology. This is a really high-level confidential issue where Hubbard talks about the Duke of Chug. And he uses the Duke of Chug as an example of what a planetary control system would look like, a computer system that actually controlled a planet. 
Hubbard started asserting at this time when he created this INCOM division of Scientology, this computer division, he told them about the Duke of Chug. And I don't, the actual issue is, has not leaked out of the church. But here's a summary of it from put, put together um, on Tony's blog, The Underground Bunker, by Jeffrey Augustine. And I'm reading from it directly here when he says, Hubbard said that the Duke of Chug was a secret criminal with hidden evil purposes. The Duke had raised income taxes to obscene levels. But even with higher taxes, societal conditions were getting worse and not better. The planet was on the verge of a massive and bloody revolution. But then the computer system, impervious as it was to weak-headed human emotions, performed a dispassionate analysis and discovered that the Duke of Chug was embezzling gigantic sums of tax money. Acting with speed, precision, and ruthless ethics, the computer system ordered the Duke of Chug executed. Peace, harmony, and financial sanity returned, and the planet was saved from ruin. L. Ron Hubbard wanted this same type of ruthless computer management system for the Church of Scientology. This computer system would not be influenced by any human emotional reaction, as Hubbard called it. In his Chug advices, Hubbard ordered Scientology's computer unit, INCOM, to devise such a system. All true. Uh, this is not just from Jeffrey Augustine. Other people who have come out of Scientology, who were in the Sea Org, who worked at INCOM, have this is this is where we get this information from, and this is a hundred percent Hubbard. I could totally see Hubbard telling this story. Um, so this idea that a computer system could run according to L. Ron Hubbard's management system, his policies, and specifically. If you guys remember uh, from my Basics of Scientology series and podcasts that I've done in the past, I've talked about a thing called the data series, which was Hubbard's basically Hubbard's systems of a system of logic and reason. And if you you know think about L. Ron Hubbard, you don't necessarily think about logic and reason right away. These are not things that that you that you think of in the same sense. <laughs> and and Hubbard came up with his own system, and it's called the data series. And he expected that that system of logic and, and figuring out and investigating things and figuring out what's wrong with something, he, he wanted that programmed into a computer system. And Incom has not been able to do that from that day forward because it's a crazy, stupid, illogical system that relies completely on the human emotion and reaction that L. Ron Hubbard claims he is divorcing his logic system from. You see, it's it's completely nonsensical, and you can check out my other videos about the data series if you want to know more about that. But um, but that's how he wanted his computer systems going, and how he expected the, these computers to run the orgs. And he actually expected at some point that humans would would almost be taken out of the equation entirely. And it would just be the computers running things. So um, that's kind of interesting, kind of scary, very, very authoritarian, of course, all, all kinds of um, chances for abuse with this. But in terms of practical terms in Scientology, what this really did was generate just forests of paper and paperwork 
uh, because um, they built systems that demanded that they have a lot of data fed into them. And this required all the staff from all the orgs every week to fill out these computerized report forms and send them on up. And all of that stuff was printed out and scanned into these computer systems so that it would have the raw data on which to do its analysis. And this goes on week after week after week, and they've accumulated probably terabytes of data at this point uh, from all these staff member reports, but they don't know what to do with it. You know, they, how do you manage Scientology with this? Well, good luck, right? So that's kind of the the situation there. But I, I thought I'd give a little bit more background to that than just the keyboard question because I thought it was a good opportunity. So there you go. Alex C. How often did you wear your Class A C organization uniform, which if I recall is the dress whites? Did you ever get strange reactions wearing it in public? Was it considered cool internally or more of an eye roller? Okay, Alex, thank you for this question. Um, no, it wasn't. The Class A is not the dress whites. I don't know. I can't remember right now what class uniform the dress whites are. But Class A is your, is this here? I'll show, a, I'm going to throw a screenshot up here of David Miscavige and his, his crew in Class A uniform. It's the dark uniform. And that was our daily uniform while I was working in Sea Org management. So for the first eight or nine years of my Sea Org experience, that was the only uniform I had. And um, we wouldn't necessarily have to wear the jacket all the time. We, when we were sitting down in the office doing our work, we would, um, you know, sit in our chairs, roll up our sleeves, you know, kind of we get a little informal. But you always had to have the tie on. I wore a tie seven days a week for 17 years, just about. Uh, it, you know, there's, there's, um, th there's very little variation in that uniform. I had two white shirts, one jacket, um, two pairs of pants. I think at one point I finally got up to two pairs of pants. I think I only had one for quite a while. And that was my uniform. That was my set of clothes that I wore daily, uh, for years and years and years. And, um, internally, uh, the Sea Org Class A uniform is mostly only worn for, by other Sea Org members. If you're working in a service org where you're dealing with the public and stuff, you have a different uniform. It's a more casual, uh, kind of look. And you can see that reflected in the, the flag uniforms and the pack uniforms. But the Class A is still, I think that's still the management uniform. I'm not sure, of course, but, I think that's the way it is. And um, so it was regarded, you know, as the as the formal dress uniform. And the only thing about it that I used to uh, like about it was that you could show off all your insignia, right? The other uniforms don't have all the brass and braid and everything on them. So nobody gets to see how cool you are with all of your awards and campaign ribbons and everything uh, as when you wear the formal Class A. So... That's kind of how that was. In terms of public reactions, though, this is kind of funny. I, um, when we would go out in public, we looked like military, active military. And people could get confused because the, the uniform's not exactly Navy, not exactly Army, or what, like, what is that? And so we would get questions. I would be asked from time to time on the bus or the metro or walking around or going to a restaurant, What's, what branch of the service are you in? Or, oh, I don't recognize that uniform. And... and um, I would, I would always say, well, I work for the C organization. I'm a branch of, you know, it's a branch of the church of Scientology and people would shut the hell up right away when I said that. Um, but near the end of my time, I got a little cheeky and I started talking about how I was, um, special forces. 
special peacekeeping forces. <laughs> You know, stuff like this. I would never, I didn't lie. I just sort of threw that out there, right? And I thought that was kind of hilarious at the time. It was a big in-joke. But um, yeah, that's kind of how we would deal with that. I never once asked for or got a military discount or anything like that. I wasn't trying to steal anybody's valor wearing that uniform. Um, but I know other Sea Org members who did. So that was, uh, that's another uh, morsel of that. So anyway, there you go. Tony Cartledge, I watched your interview with Jessica Schaub with particular interest because her story seemed so unique. A new age guru who had seen the light of reason and saw through her previous fascination with dodgy beliefs. I wanted to see where she is now, only to discover that she has reverted to her former indoctrination, even stating on her YouTube page that her encounter with critical thinking was brainwashing. She's now back in touch with her spirit guides and her followers, and she seems to have doubled down on her alt beliefs, which now appear to include COVID denial. I'm sure there's a lot going on there in her head to cause such a dramatic reversal, but I wondered if you'd ever seen this before, people going back to former indoctrinated beliefs, but doubling down to perhaps counter their previous apostasy. Well, Tony, you've described the situation perfectly because it's exactly what happens, and it happens quite often. It's not a rare event for somebody to leave a high-control, destructive situation, and in the turmoil of their stages of grief, you could say, or through the confusion and cognitive dissonance that they experience and the discomfort that that generates— it's too much for them. They, are, they feel overwhelmed. They feel out of sorts. They feel like they don't have a stable base on which to, to hang their hat or, or, or walk through, through their, their path of life. And so they revert back to earlier patterns, right? Because they don't have anything that they can cling to or hold on to that keeps them stable now. This is often aided and abetted by cult members of their former group, or even the leader of their former group, as I believed is what kind of happened with Jessica after our interview. She was still under the influence of someone who, um, you know, was not a real cool guy. And that's all I'm really going to say about that, because I don't really have a lot more to say about it. It's not really that important. In answering this question, though, um, it is important to note that when a person can breaks free of or escapes from a, a, a destructive relationship, a, a narcissistic relationship, abusive household, you know, even trafficking or job situations, as well as the coercive control that they experience in a high control or destructive cult group, any of those conditions can create that cognitive dissonance and that instability in the person and make them feel like, well, it was bad, but it's better than this confusion and chaos that I'm experiencing now. And they really just don't have anything else to cling to or whatever is given to them or offered to them or whatever they get hold of, they just it doesn't quite click or snap into place the way that it should or that you'd want it to. And so they backslide back into that destructive situation. And of course, once they do, well, people have to be right. They have to be right about what they're doing. They have to justify or rationalize their behavior to themselves and to their group because their standing in a group depends completely upon how well they can rationalize their position in the group. 
I mean, one wonders whether this isn't why the frontal lobes were invented or, you know, developed or evolved in the first place, right? They weren't invented, but you know what I mean, um, is to help justify our, our social standing. And so when you go back to the group that you, you know, had reneged on and actually started, you know, insulting and, and, and betraying, you have to go, you're going to have to jump through some loyalty hoops, you know, some tests. And one of those is going to be the active, you know, blatant uh, decrying of your former group or, you know, your apostasy. So it's like, oh, I was a sinner and I, I've come back to the light now and I saw the error of my ways and I'm very, very sorry. And I was totally, I was a sinner, you know, I mean, these are, this has a thousand variations, but it's all the same tune. And it, and it basically is, I got to get back in the good graces of the group that I have left. And when that group is a destructive cult or a controlling, you know, abusive situation, it's sad. It's tragic, really. Um, but it happens all too often. I have heard various degrees of percentages in regards to um, either backsliding or joining another group that's just as bad, even if it's different from the one they left. I think those are two different phenomena, but I think they they fall under the same basic umbrella of backsliding or going back into a, a cultic belief set. Um, people, you know, there are people who just feel like they have to believe in something. Um, it's a hard place to be for some people to not, to just say, I don't know, to, to, to be able to say, it's okay with me that I don't know something or that something's even unknowable at this time. You know, some people just can't go there. They, they, it makes them emotionally unstable to think that way. And so they have to have something. And they'll take something over nothing 100% of the time. And that's, you know, that's one of the motivators for that. There are a lot of other social motivators. I mean, losing familial connections or important ties hurts. And, and some people don't want that and they just say they can't deal with it. It's too much for them. It's overwhelming for them. And, it, you know, in the face of not getting therapy, not getting help, not getting education on what it was that, that defines this kind of activity, why it's bad for you, how you might have other coping mechanisms or other things you can do instead of going back to that group. I mean, if we, you know, if we don't get to the person fast enough, basically... And if they don't grok what they need to grok quickly enough, you know, understand what they need to understand, then they'll backslide, right? And so, um, so this is why you see me talking so incessantly and so often about education being such a vital component of cult recovery. I, I personally, I just don't think it's possible to recover from a cult situation without getting the education of what happened to you and why it was bad for you and how that affected you emotionally, how it affected you uh, psychologically, um, how it affected your thinking, how it affects your, your whole point of view about things and your biases. I mean, really taking this stuff apart is, is what it means to do the work of recovery. And, if, and, and some people just can't deal with that. Um, and they need help and they don't get the help that they need or they get, you know, the negative, they get negative help. They get people pushing them actively back into that situation. So anyway, uh, a lot of different contexts there, a lot of, a lot of different, you know, situations as to why somebody might kind of backslide. But 
at the end of the day, I think it has to do with social influences and I think it has to do with personal uncertainty and instability. And, um, and I think those are the things that cause that. And, uh, and these are solvable problems, but not if anybody, you know, in that situation doesn't know the answers to those problems. And that's why, you know, calling the experts is, is sometimes the necessary thing to do. And there you go. Clive Wright, whatever happened to Volney Matheson? Volney Matheson is the guy who invented the e-meter. A lot of people think in Scientology think L. Ron Hubbard invented it, but he didn't. It was Volney Matheson. Now, Matheson was a writer. Uh, he was actually a writer of some accomplishment. A, a short story that he wrote got voted like best short story of 1930. He was a chiropractor. He was a uh, sort of psychoanalyst of sorts and uh, a bunch of other things. And he kind of fancied himself as kind of a, a, an L. Ron Hubbard type figure, but he never really got the traction that L. Ron Hubbard got. And so apparently Hubbard gave a lecture in August or September or so of 1950 where he described or talked about how they could use this electronic device to uh, facilitate the auditing of engrams. And so Volney Matheson, according to Scientology lore, was there or heard this lecture and went home and figured out how to um, figured out an e-meter using the theory of the of the Wheatstone Bridge. And uh, this is an electronic device. And so this had been something, by the way, that had been messed with earlier in psychoanalysis, even by um, Carl Jung, who found that they tried to do word association and various things with this with this electronic device that was very much like an e-meter with a needle dial and you could say things and a person would respond. And um, Young found it uh, not, not productive, didn't really work out so good. But Hubbard picked it up and Matheson invented this device and uh, they called it the, ele the electropsychometer. It was originally the Matheson's uh, electropsychometer and then it became the Hubbard electropsychometer after a whole patent dispute and, and trademark dispute and all that. And we, we don't really know exactly what happened. Um, but somehow uh, Matheson was kind of kicked out of the picture in the mid-1950s. Hubbard stopped using e-meters at all, I think from 54 to 56 or 57 or so, and then and wrote a couple books talking about how they didn't need to be dependent on an e-meter and the meter wasn't necessary. And then he got some Scientologists to basically reinvent the meter using a transistor rather than the um, vacuum tubes and the same circuit design, basically. And so that's where the Hubbard electropsychometer came from. So I think they had a parting of the ways pretty clear in the public record that that happened and Matheson went off on his own and, and he kept building his own e-meter designs and Hubbard complained about them and said later that they were just too complicated for, for Scientology's use and they needed a simpler, easier device. And that's why they stopped using them and then invented their own. And what happened to Matheson after that, I actually have no idea. All of this and more can be found in uh, the Wikipedia page on Volney Matheson. He's got his own page about that. But I, I will say to you that, um, that I don't think that... Um, uh, Hubbard was really that smart or that genius. I think he was just riding the coattails of Matheson in terms of this electronic device. And he did everything he could 
to kind of cancel Matheson's involvement with Dianetics and Scientology and make it about him, because, of course, that's what L. Ron Hubbard's going to do. So that's what I can say about that. Steve Wood. It has been well documented that LRH spent hours, days, and weeks sequestered away researching the creation of Dianetics and then ultimately Scientology. And as you know, we have heard much about his exhaustive research, but we've never heard anything about how he conducted that research. And it seems to me that the technique is not dissimilar from writing a novel, which is what he did with some extraordinary success prior to inventing Scientology. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I have read is that he would retire to his quarters and write the story of Scientology, which we are told is the science of the mind, but what we are not told is how he came by those results and what proof was used to explain his findings, except that this is what he discovered, end of explanation. After all, as we all know, science is always scientifically proven, although in this case, nothing can be proved. I can only speak for myself in this matter, but for me, that is hardly enough proof to dedicate my life to one man's explanation, albeit an extremely detailed and all-encompassing story. So why are these questions not asked from within Scientology? How come it's just acceptable on face value? Some of these beliefs are outlandish and beyond comprehension. Please explain why this is acceptable and fully understood by those in Scientology and not questioned. Okay, Steve, thank you for this question. What I can offer you here in response is basically just a little diatribe on the nature of belief and and our susceptibility to it, our sort of self-susceptibility to it. Uh, We fool ourselves constantly, all the time. That's almost the default state of the human being in regards to our interpretation of our perception. We line it up with how we think the world should be or how we have been taught the world should be or what we should expect to see in the world, and how we should frame the world. All of this is what our education consists of, right, in our childhood indoctrination. Um, Whether it's religious indoctrination, whether it's school indoctrination, political, uh, social, I mean, there's a lot of levels at which we are indoctrinated or taught about the world, and how how we relate to it, how we should fit into it. Some of us are taught from an early age that we are special little snowflakes and we are wonderful, unique little creatures and the world is ours if we will only grab it and take it and run with it. Others are taught from the very beginning of their life that they are worthless and weak and useless and that they have no place in the world and they shouldn't even really be alive and everything in between. And this has a great deal to do with how we approach the world and how we approach whether we accept beliefs or not, and how we accept those beliefs, right? This is all just, you know, framework of life 101 sort of stuff. So when it comes to a belief set like Scientology, people come to this belief set with a lot of different backgrounds and ideas about how they fit into the world and how the world should be. But if they get on board the Hubbard train, then what they're agreeing to is the idea that man is a spiritual being who is immortal and who has a vast, vast degree of potential far greater than you than you or anybody else is achieving right now. In other words, you're capable of amazing, great things if you could only let yourself be capable of those things. And it is Scientology which is going to give you that road out and it's going to give you the tools that you need to, so that you can be the best you possible. That's kind of what Scientology promises in very glowing terms. If I were to describe it in a really positive way, 
That's what they're promising. So if you are a kind of person who subscribes to that being a possible thing, that there is more possible, that you can be more, that, that you can achieve everything you've ever wanted and more, if you kind of have that kind of view of the world and you think that that's a true way to think about things, and I'm not debating the truth or falseness of that right now, I'm just describing it. I'm telling you that this is how Scientology thinks about things. And Scientologists, I, I should say, think about things. So when people come into that belief set thinking that way, and L. Ron Hubbard tells them, oh yeah, I got it, I got it figured out. You do A, B, C, D, E, you are there. Period, end of story, 100% of the time, I will get you there. If you buy into that, and the way that you buy into that is you do an introductory service, you do some counseling, some auditing, right? I shouldn't call it counseling. You get some auditing, you do some classwork, and somehow what Hubbard says or what you experience in the auditing session clicks. It just, it just does. It clicks for you. Now, it's not going to click for everybody. In fact, it's not going to click for a majority of people. But it's a numbers game. And if you're one of those people who it does click with, you go, oh, that really makes sense. I should look at a person in the eyes when I'm communicating with them. I should hear exactly what they're saying and respond appropriately to what they have to say to me. You know, these kind of things. This is communications class 101 stuff. It's very common sense stuff, but it's presented as though it's a great discovery in human relations and communication, and nobody ever thought of this before. And if that clicks with you, ah, you're accepting it. You're, you know, you're kind of attaching yourself to this belief set, tentatively at first, but then something else clicks with you. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, too. Oh, yeah, this ARC triangle, this is the shit, man. Yeah, if I have more reality with people, if I communicate with them better, I'll like them more, they'll like me more. I mean, click, 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 right? Wow, this makes a lot of sense. And so you've bought into another principle in Scientology. Now, if you think critically about these principles that you're accepting, then you will see that there are exceptions to these. But if you don't think critically about them, then you won't. And you'll buy into Hubbard's assertions that everything in Scientology is true 100% of the time. And then you buy another thing and another thing. And you can see where I'm going with this is that you, this is the road of acceptance into a belief system. And there's a, there's a tipping point. And I don't care what the belief set is. And it doesn't even really matter whether it's true or false. That's not my point. The point psychologically is there's a tipping point. There's a point where you accept enough facts, enough things as true, that you then give yourself permission to accept the entire thing as true, unexamined. I don't necessarily know if the OT levels are true or not. I've never seen them. But all this stuff that I've seen so far makes so much sense and works so well for me that I'm going to just accept on faith that all of it is now true. Every one of us has that tipping point, that point of, you know, sort of real full acceptance of this thing. And at that point, the critical thinking comes down even more, comes, you know, becomes even less because you're just kind of giving over to these assumptions that, you know, this is all true and it all makes sense. 
and that's basically the sequence of acceptance of you know and, and the and the um, adoption of a belief set, right? That's how we do it, as we as we go step by step like that. So you ask, how is it that people can enter into this belief set and never question L. Ron Hubbard's research methodology? Well, Hubbard's research methodology is something that you either ask about at the very beginning, realize there's nothing there and hit the road and you don't become a Scientologist, or it's not really what you're asking about at the beginning. Very few people are going to be asking deep, insightful questions about Hubbard's research process. Most people just want to know, how does this connect with me? What does this have to do with me? Give me something. And Scientology delivers. I'll give you a communications class. I'll give you an auditing session. I'll give you a serotonin rush, right? I'll, 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 I'll hit you with that dopamine. And, and I'll give you that. And you feel great. And the feelings take, you know, take precedence over the facts. And, and that's kind of how people get suckered into these things, whether it's Scientology or any of this stuff. So when the question does finally come around of, well, how did Hubbard figure all this stuff out? Because the, 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 don't get me wrong, that question does come up. It's just not on day one or two or three, okay? It's not the first thing people are asking about in their Scientology experience. So when they do finally start asking that question, the answer tends to be, He's just a genius guy. I don't know. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? I wish I knew. I wish I knew how he could have figured all this out because it's kind of genius, isn't it? Like these are the responses you get from Scientologists when you ask them about this is they don't really know. And instead of challenging or thinking critically about the answer to that question, they just dismiss it and go, well, there must be something I don't know, or there must be more information I don't know, or, or, or. They invent some kind of answer to fill in the void of having no answer to that question. Because the truth is, L. Ron Hubbard didn't do research. He was the farthest thing from a competent researcher that you will ever find. The man had no scientific chops of any kind. He wouldn't know what peer review was if it hit him upside the head. He wouldn't know what a literature review is. He wouldn't know what methodology is. He didn't understand statistics. The man was a cad when it came to science, just an utter ignorant boob. So he didn't do scientific research. He did exactly what you describe in your question. He would go and sit in a room and he would just make shit up. And maybe he convinced himself that the crap he was making up was true, and maybe he didn't. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. It's still crap. But he claimed it was scientific. He said it was research. He said he had done case studies. And people believed him because they don't think critically about what Hubbard says. Anyone who does think critically about what L. Ron Hubbard says leaves Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> that's a certainty. So, um, so that's what I can say about that. And, and I hope that that whole picture kind of paints a picture of, you know, how we accept stuff and, and how we, um, and how we, you know, if we would think more critically, we might not fall into such bear traps. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Idria Vici Haloub. 
Has a never-in listener listened too much to your podcast if they understood your David Miscavige flipping burgers joke? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Travis, are you cool with a carpeted bathroom? No, I do not live in the 1970s, and I don't want to go back there. Mark Poulos. Scientology has been approved to renovate a building in downtown Detroit recently, capitalizing on the rebuilding going on, of course. What can I do to warn my community of this evil and possibly stop the growth of this org? Well, Mark, I don't know that you individually are going to stop the growth of Scientology in Detroit, but what you can do is um, share, like, subscribe, you know, push our content, the, 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 the Leah, Mike, Tony, me, Aaron, Karen De La Carriere, all of us people who are producing content that gives the facts and figures and, and data about Scientology and its abuses. We really need you guys sharing this stuff a way lot more than you do. I, I'm not down on anybody who is doing the work, but I'm, I'm trying to say for those of you out there who aren't, we need your help with this, right? I mean, I put up a YouTube channel and I'm doing this as a job and as a way of making a living, but I'm also doing this because I'm on a mission. Believe me, there are a lot of other things I could be doing with my life than this work that it would make me a lot more money and give me a lot more things. But I, I do this work because I want to expose the abuses of these groups, and I want to I want to try to make the world a little bit of a better place. So we need, and that's just my channel. Karen's doing the same thing. Tony's doing the same thing. Mike and Leah are doing the same thing. I mean, really, all of us are on this thing. And so I really think that, you know, my, my solid answer to your question is, is do the most that you can to get our work out there and into more people's faces and in, in front of more people's um you know, eyes and ears. Um, that's that is the number one thing that we really need all of y'all's help with in order to make more inroads and get more voices being heard about this. It's it's really the echo effect. We need you guys echoing our work. And if you want to do this work yourself, of course, I more than welcome you to the fold. Please, you know, if you want to start a channel. Um, write a newsletter, write emails to people, post flyers, get the Scientology in the aftermath cards and put them up around town, around the org. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do that are that are helpful and useful uh, in this fight. So those are my, that's my flash answer response to this. I hope that was useful. All right. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on here on this show. I really appreciate you inviting me into your home for this. And I hope that my answers were useful, informative, educational, and perhaps entertaining. All right. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.